Thank you. Thank you, Bishop Sarah. So thank you so much for coming. Uh, my name is Rob Waller. I'm a consultant psychiatrist up in Edinburgh and Scotland. So we're very much hoping that the typhoon is not going to damage the rugby tomorrow. Um, but it's, it's a lovely pleasure to come down to Brighton. Um, as Will said, I, I got involved in this when I was having to deal with this tension between mind and soul. I was finishing my training as a psychiatrist, a, a registrar in psychiatry, and I was also an elder in the local Baptist church. So I had to sort of try and work these things out. And that, that's what the blog was about. And we've continued to try and bring these sorts of messages today. So what we're going to try and do is lead you through a sequence of talks. Um, I'm going to be starting off talking about I Can Change. And then we're going to be handing over as we go through the day. Please feel under no obligation if your bladder calls, just walk out. I will not stare at you or comment at all. Just go for it. We're going to run right through till lunch. So please just go for it. But let's have a chat while we're talking about... I can change. This is such a, a controversial topic. The idea that we can change, can't we change? Should we let go and let God? Or should we try and take initiative? Um, we've called this conference Running on Empty because I think we recognise that either for you perhaps today or for many people who you are trying to support, something needs to change. Something has to change, something has to be different. We are running out of petrol, the water is going down the plug hole, however you want to describe it. Um, as a psychiatrist, I'm sometimes asked to define the word, what is a nervous breakdown? And actually, I haven't got a clue what a nervous breakdown is, so I'll give you my dad's definition, which is a mechanical engineer's definition. He said, this car has a fundamental issue, it is pulling over onto the side of the road until someone fixes something, and it's not going to get back on the road until something has changed. So that's what we want to, to try and be talking about today. Now, of course, Christians have got ideas about this. If we just pop the next slide up. Christians have, and the next one. Um, Christians, the, the, what this cartoon says, it says church services, spiritual renewal, life, affirmation, personal growth, all these kinds of things that the church is into nowadays. And the person beside it says, you know, when I was young, it was just hatches, matches, and dispatches. And there is this sense that the church is beginning to take this topic seriously, which I think is exciting. And we're getting into the field of emotions and emotional problems. Yes, Jesus and actually Anglicans have emotions. This is an important thing to be addressing and, and talking about in the church. But we get into it because we're, we're nice. We want to help people. I think we also get into it because we think we've got some answers. And as Will was saying, what's the difference between a mind and soul foundation conference and your average mental health conference? We bring Jesus. But what we need to make sure is that when we bring Jesus and we bring the spiritual perspective, we don't leave out some of the other things that we know about change. So just the next slide there. Why do Christians believe in change? One of the favourite verses of mine in the Bible, Philippians 3, verse 14. The Philippians 3 is sort of my, my life chapter, if that makes sense. Philippians 3, famous line in a hymn as well, the upward call of God in Christ. We feel as though we are being called to something better than this. And we are on this journey, aren't we, from justification to sanctification to one day glorification. We are still, aren't we, in the sanctification stage. So we want to be getting to know God, changing, making ourselves more holy. And I would say that some of that is about emotional wholeness, whatever that means. But 
we do live in a changing and a challenging world. We don't want to go off down the line of prosperity theology that says if you have this particular formula, then your mental health will miraculously transform. We are not yet in glory. But we have to live in that tension of sanctification at the moment. Benjamin Disraeli, one of the Prime Ministers of Queen Victoria, said, change is inevitable, change is constant. John Maxwell then went on to say, change is inevitable, growth is optional. And that is quite a challenge, isn't it? Because we are surrounded by change. And the question is, as we change, are we going to change? As the world around us changes, are we going to change? As we grow up, are we going to change? Are we going to be able to move on, perhaps, from defences that we learnt in our childhood? Children should be seen and not heard, and so on. Can we grow beyond that? And sometimes we have this feeling that we can't change, just the next slide, that we are sort of frozen, that we are stuck. Are you feeling trapped today? Are you trying to help people who are feeling trapped? I I sometimes think in my clinical work, it's not necessarily about a cure. I work with quite a lot of people who have enduring psychosis, who continue to have voices, delusional beliefs. They are not cured, but one of my goals is that they are free to be able to make choices, free to be able to live where they want to, to work if they want to, to have relationships if they want to. Now, some of those things are challenging, but it is a degree of freedom despite the presence of ongoing illness. Sometimes we get change fatigue. You know, if you talk to teachers, they'll tell you about change fatigue. Oh no, another curriculum that we have to change and adapt to. Sometimes there's the fear of change. Better the devil you know that we are stuck in patterns and at least I know what I'm going to do if I carry on in my current way of thinking. Or it could be a generational historical thing. My family has never done that. My family has never gone to university. My family has never shown emotion. What are the narratives that, that we bring? There's a quote by C.S. Lewis, or possibly H.H. Farmer, depending on which bit of um, the internet you want to believe. It said, you can't go against the grain of the universe and not expect to get splinters. And there is this sense that sometimes we feel that we are out of step with how the universe is working. That could be spiritual, but it can also be emotional. And there are consequences to that. If our behaviours, our thought patterns are out of kilter with the world that we are trying to live in. Sometimes the world is wrong. Don't get me wrong. Okay? Sometimes the world is wrong, but sometimes there are things that we need to try to change. Because it has consequences. You will get splinters. You will use up the cookies in the jar. You will use all the petrol in the tank, whatever the expression is, until you are running on empty. One of my favourite illustrations of this idea of change is is from M. Scott Peck, and he writes about this in his book, The Road Less Travelled. M. Scott Peck, we think, at some point in his spiritual journey became a Christian, but this was written before he became a Christian, and he talks about this. It's a bit like you've got a map. Now, this is an ancient map of the world from 1799. If you tried to use this map to sail around the world, you would struggle because you would bump into... um, left several islands that are not there. Things have changed since then. And M. Scott Peck says it's a little bit sometimes as though we've got a map that we drew when we were about eight years old. And we drew it as the view of an eight-year-old, that certain things behave in certain ways. Children should be seen and not heard could be it. Or I have to run away so I'm not hurt. That's my map. Those are the rules, the highway code that I follow. And what's happened over time 
is that we are no longer eight years old. We are now 12 years old, 16 years old, 20 years old, 60 years old. But we've still got the eight-year-old's map, and we've come to own it, to love it in a slightly horrible way. It says in the Lord of the Rings, as, as Gollum so loves and hates himself. It's that sort of, I've got this thing and I've drawn on it with a pencil or maybe even with a red pen. I've stuck it together with sellotape. I've held onto this map and now to change it would be a massive rewrite. Absolutely massive rewrite. And if you are working with people who have had longer term mental health problems, They may be engaging in things that they know are harmful, know are damaging, but imagine what it is like to rewrite a map that you have lived off for the last 40 years. It's huge. In psychology terms, we would say that is probably going to take at least two years of intensive therapy, if not longer. And we in the church come along and say, have a Bible verse and off you go. Not helpful. And that's why people sometimes go with the devil they know, not because they're stupid but because change is massive. So there are some answers, I think, out there. I've got a bookshelf at home, which has got all kinds of books on it. I've been doing this for a little while, and people send me their books. Can you see your book up there? Um, But I've I've got, I was measuring it, I've got about 10 foot of um, Christian mental health type books. So I thought the answer must be up there somewhere, mustn't it? So I thought I haven't got time to read the whole lot, so I'll just try and remember. And in the rest of this talk, I want to try and give you some of the ideas from that. A lot of it is perhaps is going to be things to to take away, to, 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 to come back to later. But maybe thinking about what is it that you want to change? You know, I want to change perhaps is not the right place to start. You might think, what is it that I want to change? Does that affect how change will occur? Who I need to help me change? And what are the starting principles? Very quickly, three starting principles. This is Leo Tolstoy. And he said, everyone thinks of changing the world, but no one thinks of changing himself. And sometimes we externalise things as a defence mechanism, don't we? We say, it's due to the Tory cuts, or whatever our externalising thing is. And actually, maybe sometimes we do need to draw a circle around ourselves and say, revival starts with me, whatever the emotional equivalent of that is. Um, Rumi, not not a Christian, but um, this is not a unique idea to Christian theology. He said, yesterday I was so clever and I wanted to change the world. Today I am wise, I am changing myself. And perhaps that's where we need to start, is thinking about how can I change myself? A a practical illustration to that might be, if you think about someone who has an alcohol problem, and they drink to the level of dependency and damaging themselves and those around them, they may try to give up for the sake of the family. They may try to give up in order to keep the job. But until they are ready to give up for themselves, and this is what the 12 steps will, will take you through, we change needs to start with us sometimes. Just quickly plugging the book that Will and I had written. Um, we've quoted in the book, choosing to live and lead with relationship as a priority is counterinstinctual. And yet it is the step to harness the power of belonging in your life. As, as a leader, you will not change by going on a leadership program or 
um, reading books about change management. All these are useful skills. It's quite good to know some of the processes of change management so you don't go around causing chaos. But leadership also has to start with ourselves as well. And I think if we can be honest and real with ourselves as leaders, we are less likely to lead badly in the area of emotional and mental health because we are not swinging our own ball and chain around with us and taking out other people as we go. So that's one reason why Will and I have written that leadership book. Second founding principle, think about the goal. Know where you are going. And the reason I've put this in is that this is, I think, quite different to how change is measured in the NHS. Change in the NHS might be the decrease in some rating scale or the increase in some rating scale. It's about moving from caseness, you know, you are scoring such and such on the Beck Depression Inventory, to remission, where you score below a certain level. Now, these are very hard numbers, and it's good for doing research. We know that we have shown change and improvement in those scores, because ultimately the reason why you go and see a mental health professional is you probably do want your scores to decrease. But we need to hold that intention with our Christian destinations. I'm just going to remind us about two. One is the cross, okay? That we share with Christ crucified this destination, okay? We are there working not necessarily towards peace and happiness and fluffiness, okay? The Christian life is challenging. We will be persecuted. We will be asked to carry the cross for ourselves. And the second thing is around community, This is not a solo journey. Sometimes these mental health research things are very individualistic. You know, this person improved on these scores. But what about their friends? Did they have more or less friends? Did they refine their friends and relationships? What was their debt like? Their social circumstances? All these things as well. As Christians, we live in a more complex matrix. And if there's a failure in mental health research, it's that it's too individualistic. We do need to draw the circle around ourselves but we need to remember that we are also part of a community. And if we are not changing, it's not our fault. It is the, am I my brother's keeper? Yes. Okay. So we need to be having that wider perspective than perhaps the individual rating scales. Third principle, before you start, count the cost, as I was saying a bit earlier there. Luke 14, verse 26. Whoever does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be his disciple. Which of you wishing to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost to see if he has enough resources to complete it? Otherwise, he lays the foundation, is unable to finish the work, and everyone who sees it will ridicule him. If you are there with a map that you have drawn when you are eight years old, count the cost of change. Do not embark on deep exploratory therapy without support. Otherwise, you will... I'm going to quote Lord of the Rings lots today. You will dig too deeply as the dwarves did and too greedily and things will come up and overwhelm you, okay? You need to have safety. You need to be able to tolerate distress to a degree before you begin that kind of exploratory re- rewiring, rewriting, reworking work. Because otherwise, all that will happen is you'll dig the building out by the foundations and it'll fall down. Count the cost before you start. So how do we change? Again, are the answers there on my bookshelf? Um, We do actually know some stuff. There is some things we do know. Psychologists have been studying the brain for at least, it's it's well over, it's 120 years since Sigmund Freud published The Interpretation of Dreams next year. 
Okay? And psychologists have been doing work before that, particularly in the Islamic world, interestingly, back into the 11th, 12th century, writing about some of these things. We do actually know quite a lot. We can take clever pictures of the brain. We can do these funky scans that light up and we can study things. And there have been tons and tons and tons of research. So we do actually know quite a lot. And I think sometimes, as Christians, we can be tempted to say it's a little bit like the Beatles and all you need is love. Da-da, da-da, okay? And, you know, if, if only that was the case, wouldn't it? If only we just all threw everything away and just hugged everyone, everything would get better. And, you know, not bad to have the odd hug from now and again, but it, the brain is more complicated than the Beatles. What we need to remember is that psychologists have tools for complex problems. Chichi will talk a little bit about this in his talk on personality disorder later, about how do we heal difficult, challenging issues with our personalities. The human brains are complex and we have complex tools. Suzanne Moore, writing in The Guardian this week for World Mental Health Day, said, we are in the midst of a mental health crisis and advice about jogging and self-care is not enough. I think that's very true. You know, it's, it's great to start with exercise and start with these population level initiatives, start with basic small things, but at some point... We need the skills of psychologists. We need perhaps the skills of a psychiatrist. You may need a a psychiatric hospital. Okay, we need these things. And believe it or not, people do know what they're doing most of the time. If all you've got is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And I think if, if you learn one thing today, it's if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. Okay, so if you go away from here thinking, I'm going to go and try this, I'm going to go and try that thing, because that's going to be the thing that's going to fix me. Or people who you are working with or talking to come in and say, it's amazing, I've got this new book I'm reading, or I've got a new girlfriend slash boyfriend. Okay, you, you know it's more complicated than that. If it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. And often, it's not just one model of psychology that we need. It's not just one spiritual experience. We need to try and hold these things together. Now, warning, on the next slide, I have summarized all of psychology. Okay, so here we are, in beautiful technicolor. I was saying, these these slides are a bit bright, aren't they? Particularly with, oh, my word, look at that. It's this LED screen behind me. It's jumping out to hit us. But very loosely, what you've got at the top of the page is the more spiritual end, and down the bottom is the more biological or, or, or secular end. And sometimes we need all of these things. All these slides, by the way, are going to be available on the Minosaur website next week. We'll put them out there. Don't feel you need to scribble and take notes, although this is a very pretty one if you want a new backdrop for your Facebook page or something. Now, I'm not going to try and say exactly what each of these things is, but as you, as you can see coming down, biblical counselling, bringing in the Bible... Christian counselling, bringing in communication skills, some psychological techniques, an integrated model. Clinical psychology, again, some of the levers that we do know work as we've studied this. Biological psychiatry, what's happening in our synapses, our brains, those sorts of things. They don't work for everybody. When I say psychiatrists know stuff, what I mean by that is if you take 100 people a psychiatrist will be able to help the majority of them with a particular proven model, let's say CBT. It's not going to work for everybody, but on average, it will work. 
And I, it just occurred to me on the train this morning, I added this when I was getting the train down here. I think if we can hold all of these in tension, that gives us an exclusive, holistic worldview that perhaps is missing elsewhere. If we have just the spiritual, then all that happens is our emotions will blow up, won't they? Okay? If we have just the secular, they will dry up. I'm stealing this from elsewhere, you may have noticed. If we have both together, we'll be able to look at all aspects of the human personality. And you add in there a few other things like community and sacrifice. And I think we're beginning then to understand what it means to grow and mature as Christians. One organization who've managed to do this are Mercy Ministries, which I'm privileged to to be on the board of. And they've been writing a course called Keys to Freedom. Now, if you like today and you want more of it, two weeks' time in London, 26th of October, Mercy are doing an entire day of training on this model. But they explicitly work with quite challenging problems. They run all sorts of general training for the church. They have a telephone line you can ring up, but they work with six-month residentials with young people who need to go somewhere for six months, young girls aged 18 to 28 who need to go somewhere to really do this kind of work. And they know they need to look at all these areas. They need to look at the generational narratives and patterns. In the olden days, we might have called that a generational curse, but I think that's what it means, these things that run through families. They need to work with thoughts and beliefs. It's basically CBT. Behaviours, forgiveness, particular behaviour, Hurts and emotions, those sort of deep things that you can't really put words around. Soul ties, you might have heard the word used. Faith, authority. What does it mean to to be speaking in Jesus' name? To use the authoritative word of the Bible against the evil one, against our flesh. And clinical support is allowed. People will take medication. People, one of my jobs on the board is to occasionally liaise with mental health professionals who maybe have been working with this person. They come for six months, but they then need to go back to have more mental health work after that because we know that this is it's kind of a two-year journey, at least, and just six months of that is the residential. So, so Mercy have got a great model. If you want to learn more about how to journey alongside and work with people with our more challenging aspects of behaviour. So we've looked at a bunch of things. We've looked at what happens if we can't change. We've looked at maybe some starting principles. We've looked at a variety of models. And if I'm just trying to give you a, a summary so far on the next slide, this kind of tries to draw it all together. And just one more slide there. We have to start with hope. We have to start with we have a direction. I'm looking the wrong way down this church, but I can still see Jesus on the wall up there. Okay, We need to have the hope of glory and, um, as, as it said of Abraham, we have hope beyond human hope when he talked about his descendants and his generation and he and Sarah were so old and he had hope beyond human hope. So we have normal hope and then we have this extra level of hope and Christians bring that perspective and sometimes you have to carry people and hold their hope for them. But that help alongside people and the skills from what we know about biblical counseling Christian secular psychology all medication all of those things coming together is power it is a lever it can make a difference it can change Archimedes said give me a lever on which to balance my rod and I will move the world and it's it's a matter of having the right lever and the right 
pivot point. And I think we've got some of those things here today. And the result there is freedom. The goal is to be free. Free perhaps in the presence of ongoing symptoms. Or free in a a very personal way to you. Or perhaps fully free, this side of heaven. That that is a, a debate and a tension we have to hold. I'm going to finish with something completely different and those of you who are old enough will recognise the chap on this next slide I'm not going to try and do the impersonation Um, I did however go to a a college in Cambridge where John Cleese went to and on a day like today when it's raining there are puddles everywhere around the college and apparently he got his ministry of silly walks from walking around down in college trying to sort of avoid the puddles as he was doing it so that is where it comes from you heard it here but John Cleese said, and now for something completely different. I'm going to throw three completely random concepts up in the air that you may or may not have heard of before, but I think perhaps bear a bit of a look. Sometimes, you know, we know antidepressants don't work for all types of low mood. We know that CBT doesn't work for everything. So so here are three slightly different things. First is positive psychology. Now, I know this is too small, but it's pretty Okay, and and the whole that's why I put it there basically. Positive psychology is the counterpart to Christian psychology. It's not the opposite. It's the study of the healthy mind. You know, there's things on Facebook where it says post a happy picture of um, something for 30 days and you'll feel happier. Positive psychology has proven that's true. Positive psychology is why there are so many cat videos out there. Okay, it makes us feel better we've studied this and yes you may still be struggling with a mental illness but positive psychology can help us feel better better now the things around there perma p-e-r-m-a and one other letter martin seligman now some of you who've studied psychology might remember seligman he did this um he did unmentionable things to dogs that I won't go into too much um, 40 odd years ago. But he told us about something called learned helplessness. This idea that if you are giving an aversive stimulus to one dog on the basis of the behaviour of another dog, that dog learns to become helpless. It learns not to fight anymore. And learned helplessness is one of the key sort of psychological dynamics that's going on in depression. Because it's not our fault that we got depressed. It's other stuff, stuff done to us. And we have learnt that our initial attempts at change don't make a difference, so we cower down. And Seligman stopped doing that to dogs, luckily, and went on to be one of the founding fathers of positive psychology. And there is a whole world out there of small things that work. Watch a cat video each morning, okay? It's not going to change the world but it might just help a small amount, okay? I remember working with a guy who basically, he, if he woke up and it was a good day, great. And if he woke up and it was a bad day, then he was depressed all day. And it literally seemed to be what happened when he got out of bed. Did he get out of this side of bed or the other side of bed? So we pimped breakfast. We got nice lights that glowed in the morning, muesli, yogurt, waterproof radio so we could listen to classical music in the shower. I know this all sounds stupid, but we increased the number of positive days that he had. And as a result, he was able to overcome his depression and get back to work. So simple things like that. Positive psychology works. Second thing, smart goals. Again, you've probably heard of this in business. And I've been saying a little bit about it in, a, in our talk, in my talk at the beginning, about setting a specific goal, a measurable goal, 
an achievable goal, a realistic goal, and having a time frame around it. So often we say, I want to change, I want to get better. A lot of psychology is about pinning that down, because depression is like walking through treacle. It's like wading through treacle. It's sticky, it's slow. And having scaffolding to help you climb out is really important. So SMART goals is, is part of that. You know, sometimes we have shortcuts in the church, don't we? We say, oh, you know, let me just pray for you. Nice idea, but it's not SMART. And actually people afterwards say, well, I prayed and nothing happened. You know, it, it's, and there is a sovereignty of God issue there, don't get me wrong, but I think sometimes we need to be more specific in what we are doing. We lapse into Christian eases. We, we say things like, oh, God willing, uh, you know, or Deo Valente. That's the only bit of Latin you're going to get today. That means the same thing, by the way. Okay, but we have these little Christian phrases that we use, which are... Faint praise, I suppose they're almost like, aren't they? They're these little sort of off-pat things that we say. Let's get specific. That's really at the heart of a lot of therapy. To a certain extent, it doesn't particularly matter which model of therapy you're following. The key thing is, have you got a good therapist? Are they being faithful to the model they're following? And have, as a result, have you got some structure? And SMART goals is one way to think about that. What about for people who can't change? Motivational interviewing on the next slide is, is, a, is, is a technique you might want to read about. This is the cycle, the stages of change. So it's perhaps easiest to describe in alcohol dependency that um, initially we are pre-contemplative. You know, I'm saying I want to give up alcohol, but my entire life is saying something completely different. Um, you may have come across that as an experience. You know, we are pre-contemplative. And then we move to contemplative, which is, okay, I would like now to work towards giving up alcohol. And then we get into the sort of planning stage. This is what I'm going to do instead of drink. Or what I'm going to do with my hands instead of smoking. Okay? And then you move into the preparing for change and the change, eventually the change itself. And then there is the maintaining of that change. Now that cycle is a, not that difficult to understand. It's Pachasco and Di Clemente, the stages of change model. Not particularly difficult to understand. But what motivational interviewing does it is a technique to click around that. It will take you from here to here. It will take you from here to here. And a lot of it is just really about not hiding things away, calling things out. Um, just helping people objectively look at things. Reasons for, reasons not. Allowing a little bit of resonance, but still keeping pushing around. I, I can't try to explain it too much now, but motivational interviewing, if you are feeling stuck or working with people who don't want to change, is an absolutely key thing because the, the success of a psychological intervention depends on someone's stage to change. In eating disorders work, for example, if people are pre-contemplative, it's very difficult to do psychological work. So your first work has to be to get people to the stage where they are at least contemplative before you can start focusing on particular behaviours. Otherwise, it, it's a flash in the plan and it doesn't go on. Enough about us, enough about our own brains. Let's talk about God and about community to finish. Um, I'm going to pop up a few cartoons. Um, and you will know this one. This is the Footprints poem. This is um, My Child, I Never Left You those places with one set of footprints that's when I carried you okay and I think most of us will know the footprints poem and if there's one thing that as Will was saying we want you to take away from today is that first of all the Holy Spirit is he's our paraclete in the Greek 
two languages, wow. The paraclete, the alongside presence, the dove who will come alongside us, the counsellor who will walk alongside us, and also the church's role about being the arms and legs of Jesus as we journey together in this role. Can you draw strength from the growing Minosoul Foundation online community? Can you use this current cultural wind of change perhaps to... There is so much going on about groups springing up and people talking about it. It is about community that we need to work towards. Now, the, the cartoon kind of goes off piste at this point. So the next one. That long groove over there is where I dragged you for a while. <laughs> and we do have that sense, don't we? So what I would say is, find a community that will drag you for a while. Because that's what good friends do. Okay, they will say, no, we need to do this. <laughs> Sometimes it could be, we need to go down A&E because I'm worried about you. Okay? Find people who will drag you for a while because that is what good friends do. Friends who don't vanish when the going gets tough. On the third slide, one time I hid you in that little sand hole while I got a hot dog. (laughs) Now, the Lord is not like that. Hashtag God don't need hot dogs. Okay? It can feel like that sometimes, though, can't it? It can feel as though God has gone off to get a hot dog and he has stashed you in a hole. So find someone who will join you in the sand hole. Find someone who will help you climb out. Find someone who will remind you that God does not need hot dogs and actually he never left. And that kind of comes back to what we were saying before. We have the hope beyond hope. We have the help of others, the skill of psychologists and biblical counsellors. That gives us power to work towards the goal. And the goal is freedom in the church community. Freedom this side of heaven with the tensions that we are not yet in heaven. That is change. That is what change looks like. People who drag us for a while. People who remind us. If you want to read more, I've put a few resources on the next slide. Again, these will be on the website. A book by Tim Chester, who's written quite a few books around mental health and around um, the conservative evangelical things in particular, called You Can Change. My talk was called I Can Change. His is You Can Change. The correct title is We Can Change. Um, I have joked with Tim about this and said we both need to change titles. But that's a great sort of written down story of some of what I've been saying today. And particularly bringing in some of the biblical perspectives around it. The middle book is a heavy one, okay? Psychology for Christian Ministry by some very clever people at the University of Cambridge. Um, This lays out all the various different psychological things. It's not just clinical psychology, it's also social psychology, organizational change, all those sorts of things. If you are a minister or a church leader and want to be more psychologically informed about what you do, that is a great book. And then obviously there's something called the power of belonging, which is this idea that we need to find our own roots, our own foundations before we can lead others. So just to close, just remember, I can change and we can change primarily because God does not. He is the rock. He is our ultimate foundation on which we build. So as we think about change, we have to keep, keep, keep coming back to that and that's all I'm going to say today thank you